0: Just before we start the final installment of the Mysteries of Mystery Island, I want to say thanks for coming on this deep dive journey. But there's even more to this story. This week I'm releasing the three-part bonus episode, Revolvers and Razors, which is about the lives and alleged crimes of Hubert Higgs of the Viking and his two brothers. It's a tale that takes us from Gallipoli to the Western Front, from a murder in the Blue Mountains to Darlinghurst's infamous Razor Wars. The first part of this episode is available now to forgotten australia supporters and parts two and three will be released later this week as a forgotten australia supporter you'll also get access to another five bonus episodes and early ad free access to every regular episode and that includes the next one which is about the crazy ufo sightings that swept australia back in 1909 before we'd even seen an airplane in this country to support Forgotten Australia and help me keep making this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Australia and this link is also in your show notes. Alright, on with part 8 of The Mysteries of Mystery Island. It's Thursday the 29th of June 1939 and George O'Brien is staring... Death in the face aboard his homemade motor yacht Hispaniola. He's 11 hours out of Palm Beach, alone, on his fifth attempt to try to get to Lord Howe Island. George has realised that what's really important is getting home to his wife and his two sons, but he's left it too late to turn back. He's stuck in a gale and he has no choice but to heave to and shelter in the cabin. Rain hammers. The wind howls, and waves smash against hisy. When a sail starts to blow away from the mast, George has no choice but to leave the shelter and climb up to secure it. A rogue wave hits now, and he's gone. Helpless, lost in the Tasman Sea, to join the men of Mystery Star and Viking. George has the element of luck on his side. He makes it back below, and now all he can do is wait. Hissy is being tossed so violently he can't even make himself a cup of tea. Massive waves break right over the deck and cabin. It goes on like this for five days. When the weather calms, George heads back for Broken Bay, only to be stuck offshore in rough seas. He just can't reach land in his exhausted state. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the eighth and final part of the Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. It's not clear who saw Hisi offshore and realised that George O'Brien was in desperate trouble. But the yacht's distress saw the Daily Telegraph's launch put out at 9pm in a rescue attempt. The newspaper's vessel was battling 40-mile-an-hour winds. Quote, Bad visibility, intensified by heavy rains, added to the difficulties of finding the small craft, which was completely hidden at times by the swell. A few hours later, at George O'Brien's home in Sydney, his wife Doris was having a nightmare. Quote, I saw him clinging to the tiller with the waves breaking over. Suddenly, the boom swept around and threw him overboard. Then I saw his bearded face looking down at me. But Doris was awake. Quote, it was real. He was home. And I'm not ashamed to admit I wept with relief. The Daily Telegraph launch had, with great difficulty, got a line aboard Hissey after an hour and then towed the vessel into Newport around 11 o'clock that night. Quote, George O'Brien was at the point of exhaustion from cold and weakness when rescued. A few days later, George wrote an article for that paper in which he explained why he'd kept trying to get to Lord Howe Island. Quote, Persistence of effort is relative to one's attitude to life. My wife and I are in love with life. For many years, we have dreamed of living a life of freedom, which, until the ship became a reality, seemed beyond our reach. Persistence was the builder of Hispaniola, the key to freedom and life. George also described his epiphany and the horror that had followed. While he'd claimed he'd never lost faith in hissy, he also depicted himself in those dark days in the gale as being, quote, up against eternity. George had made it, and he'd given a prayer of thanks. For the time being, he was out of money, so he'd be going back to work to support his family, and he wouldn't be making any further trips out to sea in Hispaniola. That wasn't to say he was giving up. Quote, the urge remains deep within us to accomplish and win from our own efforts what will not be won otherwise. Doris said the same, telling the Australian Women's Weekly, Quote, I'm a fatalist. I believe firmly in my own good luck. That is why I know my husband, children and myself will yet see the world in our catch. George had been stung by the people who'd made fun of his obsession and his repeated failures. What did his father-in-law think? The legendary shark hunter Charlie Messenger would surely have been glad that his son-in-law was safe. But there may have been a bit of backseat sailing about how he would have done things differently and gotten to Lord Howe. After that last disastrous attempt, George and Doris faded from the newspapers, and that was just the way they wanted it. A couple of days after Christmas 1939, the couple left their now 11-year-old son Lyle with Doris's parents. They reportedly told her mum and dad they were going up to Palm Beach to test Hissy's engines, but on the 28th of December, they set out again for Lord Howe, nine-year-old son Noel, as the third member of the crew. Hissy wasn't long out of Palm Beach when they ran into strong headwinds and lashed the tiller. Now George and Doris both got very seasick, and it was up to young Noel to be their steward and the boat's lookout. The weather calmed and became favourable, and after five days, Hissy was within 100 miles of Lord Howe. Then the O'Briens hit headwinds. Then they hit calm, then headwinds, then calm. It was a torture for ten days. For ten days, they remained 100 miles from Lord Howe Island. On Friday, the 12th of January, 1940, Hissy's engine failed. Now they faced a strong headwind, and they had three gallons of fresh water left. They'd been at sea more than two weeks. George and Doris had to make a decision. They could use the wind to make for the mainland, or they could trust in their dream. They kept the faith. On Saturday, a southerly blew up to gale force, and they ran before it for four hours. Then bad weather saw them heave too. Once it cleared, they kept on. Three hours later, they spotted monumental Ball's Pyramid, which soars 1,844 feet straight up out of the Tasman, 12 miles south of Lord Howe. Next, they saw Mount
1: Gower and Mount Lidgebird. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash truecrimeadfree. That's amazon.com slash truecrimeadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone, so this Mother's day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for ninety nine dollars a saving of thirty dollars. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. It was Sunday night, the 14th of January, 1940, when the O'Briens dropped anchor in Lord Howe Island's lagoon. They'd made it, finally. The first anyone knew of this was when they sent a telegram to Doris's parents the next morning. Doris's mother told the Daily Telegraph quote, "We thought he was just testing the engine. We didn't hear one word from him until the telegram came." We need to take that with a grain of salt. Surely the messengers were wondering where George, Doris and Noel had been for the past three weeks, and that Lyle told the paper, gosh, I've been worried, also suggested it wasn't quite a secret as they made out. In any case, George and Doris absolutely loved Lord Howe Island, but they'd be returning without their son Noel. That was because he loved the place so much he begged them to be allowed to stay for a month with an islander family who adored him. Mum and Dad said, "Okay." After two weeks on Lord Howe, George and Doris sailed for Palm Beach with an island resident as their third crew member. It was mainly plain sailing, so much so that in a period of calm, George dived off hissy for a swim. Doris started screaming because a 10-foot whaler shark was just 20 feet away from him and closing in. George scrambled aboard safely. So the world was spared headlines along the lines of... Lord Howe, shark hunter's son-in-law eaten by shark. Hissy was back in Sydney in a week. Getting to Lord Howe seemed to have scratched the itch, and George and Doris announced they'd given up their round-the-world sailing dream for the time being. As it turned out, Noel stayed on Lord Howe for six months and came back to Sydney via steamer. This nine-year-old, real son of the sea, as the Daily Telegraph called him, said he preferred Hissy... To the luxury of a passenger liner in january 1941 george and doris said they were going back to lord howe with both their boys before Hissey left george told the press quote i figured the cruise as a treat for the children and decided that any nazi raider that we might encounter would pass by the hispaniola no nazis interfered Hissey left on the 10th of january and arrived on lord howe two weeks later after another family holiday all of them sailed back to Sydney safely. I love that the O'Brien family's Lord Howe saga had such a happy ending. But it so easily could have gone the other way. Why did they survive when the men aboard Mystery Star and Viking perished? As we've heard, George and Doris weren't quite as clueless as the initial newspaper stories would have readers believe. Yet they didn't come across as having anything like Brian Abbott's experience at sea and they were positively landlubbers compared with Gowell Wilson. Hissey was surely a solidly constructed boat, but then again, so were Mystery Star and Viking. I think Gordon Doherty had it right when he wrote about the element of luck. He believed it played a big role in such adventures and it was sadly true in his case. If the stars had aligned slightly differently, He and the men of Mystery Star and Viking might have made it, while a slightly different alignment of the stars might have meant the O'Brien family and Wally Pankhurst were never heard from again. But this didn't only apply to those characters we've heard about who answered the call of the sea. Whether they set sail, went to war or stayed home, chance, fate, the elements of luck or whatever you'd like to call it seemed to play a role in determining who had miraculous escapes and who died in freakish circumstances. Continuing George O'Brien's story, after that last Lord Howe trip, he tried to enlist in the Navy. They rejected him. So he joined the American Merchant Marine, crisscrossing the Pacific dozens of times to deliver supplies to strategic points. Here's a sobering summary of this neglected part of World War II from the Merchant Marines official site. Quote, One in 26 mariners serving aboard merchant ships in World War II died in the line of duty, suffering a greater percentage of war-related deaths than all other U.S. services. Casualties were kept secret during the war to keep information about their success from the enemy and to attract and keep mariners at sea. George wound up in command of a liberty ship. He sailed through unscathed. Interviewed for the Daily Telegraph in July 1946 by Lou Del Bob Hawke's future father-in-law, under the headline, Self-taught Mariner Still Having Fun. The article, quote, Vessels he commanded ran the gauntlet of enemy submarine and aerial attack. You can believe O'Brien when he tells you he enjoyed it all. The paper reported his American commander wrote George up as, quote, a fine seaman, an accurate navigator, and a highly dependable man, to which he might have added, bloody persistent and bloody lucky. George would continue sailing and have his own dinghy building business. He lived a long life, passing away in 1974. Doris O'Brien lived another 15 years. In August 1946, 10 years after he'd sailed the pup from Sydney to Thursday Island, Wally Pankhurst, now 62, was sailing from Brisbane to Sydney in a 50-foot boat. One morning, he was in the engine room when he heard a bump, and the 60-ton vessel was lifted out of the water. Wally ran up on deck, saw a whale alongside, grabbed a plank of wood and gave it a whack. The whale raised its fluke and it hung over Wally's head, ready to smash him and the boat into oblivion. Wally bolted into the wheelhouse and the tail slammed down. According to Wally, it missed the boat by inches. The crew tried to steer away, but the whale had bent the propeller shaft. A second whale dived underneath the boat and its back ripped a nine-foot length of steel from the keel. Wally, his two crew members and the boat got back to Sydney to tell the tale. His luck held again. Wally passed away in 1965, aged about 81. On the 29th of June 1941, the Royal Australian Navy destroyer Waterhen, which had searched fruitlessly for Mystery Star, was making a run to Dubrook when it was attacked by German and Italian dive bombers, 19 aircraft in all. The most devastating explosion was caused by an 1,100-pound bomb hitting the stern beneath the waterline. The engine and boiler rooms flooded immediately. Waterhen's luck had run out. But luck had held for the 128 or so men aboard. Only one sailor was wounded, supposedly hit by a flying can of bully beef. Waterhen was evacuated and sank the next day under tow. The destroyer, fondly known as Chook, was the first Royal Australian Navy vessel lost to enemy action in World War II. Norman Wallace, who'd searched for his friend Gower Wilson, became a lieutenant commander in the Royal Australian Navy during World War II. Luck was also on his side. No enemy torpedo or dive bomber found him. It was also on Norman's side during decades of travelling around Australia and to some of the world's wildest frontiers. Norman wrote about his experiences and also made movies about the people he met and the places he went. In 1958, he journeyed to Central Australia and make a widely seen film about Albert Namatjira. In 1965, at age 65, Norman did a seven-month trip to Iceland, Ethiopia and Greece. By then, the last place he was yet to visit was South America. In November that year, he was planning an Amazon River trip when he left Sydney on the simplest and safest journey imaginable, the train to Melbourne for business. Norman Wallace died of natural causes before it reached Spencer Street. Charlie Messenger was not drowned by an octopus, smashed by a whale, eaten by a shark, or spirited away by a sea serpent. He died at the age of 70 in January 1952. A small article about his passing in The Sun noted, quote, He first popularized fishing for sharks with a running line and once amazed American visitors by riding on the back of a hooked 18-footer until another shark nearly caught him. Edward Quintal, the Norfolk Island native who'd turned Lord Howe resident and who'd played a bit part in Mystery Island before wanting to be part of the Mystery Star Adventure, carried on the Band of Nine's tradition by enlisting to fight in 1940. Edward Quintle was on another island, Singapore, when it fell to the Japanese in 1942. He endured three years as a prisoner of war at Sandarken before dying on the 2nd of February 1945. Two years after Mystery Star disappeared with her husband, Grace Ricard Bell married again. Her second husband was 28-year-old John Thompson Gunther, who'd much later in life be knighted for his work in Papua New Guinea and his service to Australia. John had taken a medical degree at Sydney University in 1935 and after that become a medical officer at Lever's Pacific Plantations in the Solomon Islands. He might have been living the life that had been meant for Hal Rickard Bell. On the 1st of March 1938, John and Grace got married while he was on leave. He didn't think she'd like the tropics, so he took a role as chairman of Mount Isa's medical board. Around August 1940, they had a daughter they named Jean. Doing his bit, John joined the RAAF in June 1941, and he was stationed first in Melbourne and then in Brisbane. It was there on the 10th of June 1942 that Grace was in the backseat of a sedan with her baby Jean. Also in the car were three other children, the driver and two adult passengers. Driving near her home in Sandgate, a truck carrying logs swerved to avoid hitting the car. But the lorry's trailer flipped and hit the sedan. The truck then smashed into another car, rolled and both of these vehicles burst into flames. Two people in the second car suffered serious burns. Of those in the sedan, baby Jean and two children had facial or scalp lacerations, and three adults suffered lacerations and shock. Given the violence of this accident, relatively speaking, they got off lightly, except for Grace. She died at the scene as ambulance men tried to save her. Grace was 30. Had she been sitting anywhere else in the car, she probably would have lived, and yet someone else would have died. Grace's former brother-in-law, Brian's brother, Hal, Ricard Bell, was to remain in England. While his semi-autobiographical confessional novel, Man No Good, has faded into obscurity, his next book, 1937's The Handbook of Modern Pig Farming, is considered a classic and has been reprinted continually. After Hal and his first wife Marianne, divorced, he remarried a spunky journalist named Joan Davies. They had a daughter and raised his son from the first marriage. When the war with Germany began, Hal's occupation as an agricultural researcher meant he didn't have to enlist. He still had a limp from the crushed pelvis he'd suffered in that 1932 car crash. So he could have been ruled medically unfit. But Hal tried to enlist in the RAF. They turned him down. So he tried again. They said no again. As we've heard, the Rickard Bell men were nothing if not determined, and they didn't take no for an answer. Hal tried the RAF again, and this time he was accepted. Hal trained to be a radio operator and a navigator. On the afternoon of the 13th of November 1942, he and a pupil pilot were flying in a bow fighter on an interception exercise over the English-Scottish border when the plane collided with another bow fighter also piloted by trainees. Hal and his pilot were killed instantly. Hal was 37. The element of luck meant that the two men from the other plane walked away uninjured. Back in Sydney, Hal's younger brother Lyle said he knew Hal was dead the moment it happened. Their mother Eiley had never gotten over the loss of George in 1936 and now she had the death of Hal to try to cope with. On top of that, Lyle and Richmond were also serving, so her anxiety during the rest of the war had to be enormous. Eiley died in 1950, aged 70, leaving Dr. Harry as a widower again. He passed away in 1959, aged 88. While Hal had been a leading pig breeder in England, in Australia, Brother Lyle was a leading veterinary researcher. When the war came, he signed up and went to Duntroon. There, an explosion during training left him partially deafened. Yet, he still served in Papua New Guinea under Thomas Blamey, advising on the health of horses that were vital to take supplies to soldiers up muddy tracks. Lyle was continually promoted, attaining the rank of major. He survived the war and stayed in the islands for a year, advising on animal diseases that might make their way back to Australia. Lyle returned in 1946, raised his two sons with his wife Esme, and continued to make his name as a leading veterinary researcher. He passed away in 1980, aged 73. Little brother Richmond joined the RAAF in 1942. He also survived the war, became a doctor, and in a coincidence also married a woman named Joan Davies. They had six children and adopted two more. Richmond died in 2001, aged 79. He had 27 grandchildren, who have 34 children of their own, so far. Richmond and Jean's daughter, Barbara Mortimer, has been absolutely invaluable in the making of this podcast, confirming many details and colouring in the characters of her family and its dynamics. And a big thank you also to Judith Ricard Bell and William Ricard Bell
1: for their kind assistance. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash truecrimeadfree. That's amazon.com slash truecrimeadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Gowell Wilson was never forgotten on Lord Howe Island. On the 1st of November 1937, a wreath of poppies, like those who'd been taking to the island for Remembrance Day, was dropped overboard from the Merinda halfway between Sydney and Lord Howe Island, to mark the first anniversary of his loss and the loss of his son and crew of Viking. This, and a wreath laid at the Cenotaph, was the work of the Gower-Wilson Memorial Committee, which had been formed to raise money so the island might finally have its own hospital their agitation saw the New South Wales government subsidise a resident doctor. In March 1938, a Sun article was headlined, Kitchen Table Surgery Ends. The islanders, having raised 200 pounds, had approached the government for a grant. It had been given, and now the Lord Howe people were planning to build a little cottage hospital with their own hands. It had contained two wards, a theatre, dispensary, kitchen and waiting room. World War II interrupted plans for a while. Island men who might have been labourers enlisted and steamers that might have carried materials and equipment were requisitioned for war service. But three years later, on Anzac Day 1941, the Gower Wilson Memorial Hospital was open for patients. It's been serving Lord Howe for 80 years this year. Gower Wilson's other legacy was of course his family. His son Roy, The little boy who'd been up on Malabar Hill looking to the sea for his father throughout November 1936, signed up for the RAAF in February 1943, shortly after his 18th birthday. Roy spent much of the war at the RAAF station at Rathmines near Port Macquarie. This was the biggest flying boat base in Australia and it was essential to defending the country against the Japanese. By September 1943, it was home to 14 Catalinas and four other amphibious planes. The base's peak saw nearly 3,000 men stationed there. During the six years of the war, some 320 airmen and crew died, most of these while flying missions, either due to enemy action or to accident. Roy's maritime experience and the air force training he received saw him become a fitter on a motorboat crew servicing Catalina's at Rathmines up in Townsville and at Medang in what was then Java. Roy was demobbed in early 1946 and went back to Lord Howe Island to run the Ocean View Guesthouse with his brother The next year, after nearly a decade without tourism thanks to the war, Lord Howe had a new link to the world with the start of a passenger flying boat service from Rose Bay. At around 6.30 in the evening on Thursday the 28th of September 1948, Roy Wilson was having dinner with a friend near the Ocean View apartments when he heard a plane. It wasn't one of the passenger planes, but instead an RAAF Catalina high up, flying east to west, showing a red navigation light. The aircraft was too high up to sea, but Roy and other islanders were aware that the RAAF was conducting navigational exercises in their vicinity. The plane's lights and its engines trailed off towards the mainland, and Roy went back to his dinner. Five to ten minutes later, he heard the engines again, but this time they seemed to be under strain, as if in a dive or a steep climb. These sounds faded too, but Roy heard them intermittently in different positions, making him think that the plane was circling the island. In the Catalina, the nine-man crew had had an uneventful day's flying when they turned from Lord Howe Island and aimed their plane at Rathmines. They'd cover the 300 or so miles in a couple of hours. The plane's pilot was Flight Lieutenant Malcolm Smith. His second was Pilot Officer Lionel Pearcy. Also aboard were navigators, Flight Lieutenant James McCoy and Flight Lieutenant William Keller. Then there were radio operators, Flight Lieutenant Alex McKenzie and Warrant Officer John Lee. Warrant Officers Sidney Bacon and Donald Salas were flight engineers. The ninth man aboard was Instructor Flight Lieutenant Bert Bradley. Warrant Officer John Lee had, at the request of Captain Smith, radioed a request for the Catalina to climb to 7,000 feet as it flew west from Lord Howe Island. That hit this height and he was still at the radio a few minutes later when petrol started coming into the plane's rear navigation compartment. It wasn't a leak, it was a torrent pouring from above, likely coming from the overhead crossfeed system. Warrant officer John Lee was soaked in it. He turned off the radio for fear a spark would blow them all to pieces. He went forward and told Captain Smith. Pilot Officer Piercy went back to have a look. He realised they were in real trouble. The crew were ordered to take up ditching positions while Captain Smith turned around to head back to Lord Howe Island. Warrant Officer Lee went back to the rear compartment and unlocked the blisters, that is, the observation bubbles, which could be used as an escape route when they made a forced landing on Lord Howe's lagoon. He put on his life jacket and checked that the dinghies were ready to deploy. Warrant Officer Lee then took up his ditching position in one of the blisters. Flight Lieutenant Bert Bradley, who, as the instructor aboard, was an excess crew member without a defined station, took up a ditching position in the other blister. By now, the Catalina's engines were spluttering, running powerfully one moment and failing the next. The port engine started to conk out. Warrant Officer Salas kept trying to restart it by working the priming pumps. Throughout all of this, the crew couldn't use the radio for fear of sparking an explosion, so there was no way to communicate to Lord Howe Island Station that they were in trouble. The pilot also couldn't use the lamp lights because it would destroy his night vision and because their light wouldn't give much indication of their height above the water. Warrant Officer Lee and Flight Lieutenant Bradley got permission from the captain to open both blisters to vent the plane because they were being choked by fumes from all the petrol sloshing around at their feet. At 6.55, Lord Howe Island came into view on the port side. Both engines now died, and they were gliding towards the island. Captain Smith circled, descended, and came in from the east aiming the plane at the lagoon dead ahead, and then the starboard engine screamed back to life. Warrant Officer Lee heard and felt a massive thud, and his last thought before he blacked out was that hit the water pretty hard. But it wasn't water. The hull of the Catalina had clipped a rocky ridge 600 feet up on Malabar Hill, right near the spot where Roy Wilson had, 12 years earlier, spent that long sad month, looking out for the Viking. The impact ripped open the hull of this petrol-flooded plane and caused a shower of sparks. Four minutes or so after Roy Wilson last heard the plane, he heard what he said was a terrific roar of its engine and then a crashing sound. Running outside, he saw a sheet of flame coming down the side of Malabar Ridge, just backing up from Ocean View. Roy would tell the official inquiry, quote, then I saw and heard an explosion as the flaming mass hit the ground. Roy raced to it with his friend, Bill Davies, hard on his heels. They stopped 50 yards from the blazing wreckage. Roy said he didn't think there was anything they could do. Whoever was in the plane was dead. Then Bill Davies saw movement. Roy said, let's go. As he told the inquiry, whose files can be found at the National Archives of Australia, quote, I raced up to the crash and which was burning fiercely at the time, and saw a body about 20 feet from the tail of the plane. The man, burned and with a broken ankle, said, ''Don't worry about me. Get my mate Snow. He's in there.'' Snow was Warrant Officer Lee's nickname. Gower ran to the tail and heard a moan, but he couldn't see anyone. Quote, ''I went further under the tail and saw a burning object, touched it and it proved to be a man.'' Roy smothered the flames and dragged this man free of the wreckage. About a minute later, an explosion occurred and the fire spread further. With the help of other residents, he and Bill carried the men away. They were taken to the hospital named for Roy's lost father. Roy and Bill searched the burning wreckage the best they could, but no one else had made it. Warrant Officer Lee and Flight Lieutenant Bradley both had leg fractures, lacerations, and serious burns. The RAAF sent to Catalina to evacuate them the next morning. Flight Lieutenant Bradley needed a blood transfusion mid-flight. Both men survived. An eyewitness would tell Smith's Weekly, quote, Roy Wilson and Bill Davies were there first. They got one survivor clear very quickly. The second was on fire. But Wilson heroically threw himself on top of him, burning himself in the process all the time the rescues were going on, nobody knew whether the plane was carrying a bomb or ammunition. Things were exploding all the time. It took a lot of guts to go near it. It did, especially as Roy and Bill had both been in the RAAF and knew that an explosion was likely. The witness report continued in Smith's Weekly, How the two survivors came out of it was providential. They had shifted to a blister, When the plane came to rest, it broke off there, throwing them both out. At that spot, just then, there was no fire. The wind kept it off them, but only for a few minutes. When the tank and the other wing blew up, flames were everywhere. Wilson got the survivors out of it, just in the nick of time. From both Roy's account and the witness's account, there'd been 60 seconds in it. It could have gone the other way, with both survivors from the crash being killed, along with Roy and Bill Davies. There's a plaque dedicated to the seven men who died and to the two survivors at the spot where the plane hit 600 feet up Malabar. But most hauntingly, the wreckage of the plane, parts of the wings and the engines have been left as a memorial where they came to rest. It's hard not to be moved as you marvel that anyone survived. Which, of course, they wouldn't have without the element of luck and the quick thinking and bravery of Roy Wilson and Bill Davies. For their actions, they'd both be awarded the George Medal for bravery. Ever since Gower Wilson had disappeared, it had been asked whether Viking had really been fit for the voyage. Roy believed it had been. In 1951, he set out to prove it. Now 26 years old, Roy had Viking 2 built on the mainland to the very same specifications as his father's motor launch. At 1 a.m. on the 28th of September 1951, Roy and three crew members sailed from Sydney Harbour for Lord Howe. They arrived safe and sound at 11 o'clock in the morning on the 3rd of October. The Daily Telegraph in Sydney headlined its little article Islander Beats Ocean Hoodoo. In 1982, Roy became my mother Daphne's partner. They had five years together. She nursed him as cancer took hold. When he died in 1987, Roy, in accordance with his wishes, was buried at sea so he could rest with his father and his brother. The Wilson-Thompson clan remain integral to Lord Howe Island. Ocean View was run by 5th and 6th generation islanders. As for the men of Mystery Star, in January 1942, Leslie Hay Simpson was briefly back in the news. New South Wales had a new chief secretary, John Baddeley, and he'd overturned the ban on Leslie Hay Simpson's film, When the Kellys Rode. But it was wartime, and no one thought it'd be profitable to put this creaky old bushranger picture into a theatre. So Leslie Hay Simpson didn't ride into New South Wales cinemas as Ned Kelly until June 1948. That was 15 years after he'd made the movie, and 12 years since he'd died. Newspaper advertisements excitedly proclaimed, ban lifted, as if this was something new. When the Kellys Road might just have a claim as the first Australian talkie that was recommended to audiences as a cult so bad it's good experience. One review in The Sun said three things made the film almost bearable. One, the way the men rode. Two, the way the horses acted because they were the only ones that did. And three, the comments from the audience. This critic said the cast were expressionless, quote, they can hear of tragedy, death, murder, treachery, without moving a muscle. The Daily Telegraph chimed in by calling it woefully comic, but noted the film is worth preserving in some museum. However, this critic did allow, quote, only the late Hay Simpson as Ned Kelly shows a rude vigour in the role. The Sun ran a second review, and this critic said, This relic from the dark ages of Australian movies is unwittingly funny. But this reviewer also had to concede that Leslie Hay Simpson stood out as the only good thing in the show amid the hilarious eye-rolling of the other amateur players. A Smith's Weekly writer was also a fan, saying that of any Ned Kelly film or play, I am forced to admit it is the worst I have seen and which I enjoyed immensely. This hilarious flick was, quote, as good as a Marx Brothers riot, but the critic allowed that the only character to emerge with any clarity was Ned, quote, who mooned about mumbling dire threats in a rugged Australian accent. This Smith's Weekly writer was clearly having fun with his review, but he also showed his own woeful lack of general knowledge with this, quote, A character named Hay Simpson played the part of Ned. I haven't seen Hay around lately. Maybe he's retired to a monastery and is trying to live the whole sorry business down. When the Kellys rode, then rode off into obscurity, though I'm now very curious to see it. Brian Abbott lived on in Orphan of the Wilderness, which used to play on TV right into the 1990s. Now it's sadly unavailable in any format. Same goes for Mystery Island. If Brian Abbott had made a different decision that day on Lord Howe Island, or if he'd made it to Sydney alive, would he have become another Errol Flynn? Probably not. That sort of lightning rarely strikes twice. But Brian Abbott was talented, good looking, and had starred in two films in the space of six months, which meant he was off to a really good start well ahead at least of Chips Rafferty, who had his first tiny film roles in 1938-1939 in Ken Hall Productions' *Antony's Pants and Dad Rudd MP. Brian Abbott also had a head start on Peter Finch, who in 1938 had a small comic pit in the Ken Hall-directed Dad and Dave Come to Town. Of course, Chips Rafferty and Peter Finch were both to rise to international fame in the 1940s And the early 1950s. Brian Abbott might have gone on to something similar. Woody's career have been compromised by his charisma and charm being part of the same package that made him such an impulsive risk taker and rule breaker. None of that did Errol Flynn's movie career serious harm for the longest time, or Peter Finch's. Chips Rafferty was less of a hellraiser, but still known for telling a yarn, having a drink, and having a fight. If things had been different, what would life for Brian and Grace have been like? We don't know. I've been told his family loved her, and Brian and Grace appeared happy and devoted to each other. Of course, if he'd lived, she wouldn't have been in Brisbane in that car in 1942. Brian's first wife, Phyllis Curley, would remarry a man named Andrew Powers. Their son, Hal Beaumont Ricard Bell would take his father's new name and be known as Beaumont Ward Powers. Sadly, Andrew Powers would die in the war in 1942. Beaumont, Monty to his loved ones, knew nothing about his biological father until much, much later in his life. His mother, Phyllis, didn't speak about Brian except to say that she was relieved he wasn't in their lives because you never knew what he'd do next, for better or for worse. Monty became very accomplished. He got his PhD at the University of London and went on to a career as an eminent theologian, author of religious books and an Anglican minister. Monty got married and had two sons, David and Philip. Though he didn't know who his father was, Monty was a lifelong movie fan and he'd take his boys to a double feature every week. In another striking coincidence, in 1973, he became one of Australia's seven Commonwealth film censors and served in this role for four and a half years. So this man, son of a vanished movie star, played a role in classifying the new generation of films being made by the likes of Bruce Beresford, Julian Armstrong, Peter Weir and Fred Skepsi. Philip Powers inherited his father's love of movies and of classical music, and in the 1980s, he became a soundtrack composer and producer. Philip Powers is also the author of a series of film books. You can find them at philippowers.com. That's Philip with one L. Philip and I have had a long chat in the past week, and his help in making this episode has been invaluable. We're listening to Philip's music right now, and we have been for the past four minutes. This composition, Golflander, was also the music we heard at the very start of part one. Brian's son, Monty, has also been very helpful. He's now 90 and doing well after recent open heart surgery. We had a great talk, and I wish him all the best for a continued speedy recovery. Like Monty, I didn't know that I had a Lord Howe Island link for most of my life. Three weeks after I was born, I was put up for adoption, and I grew up in a loving family in Western Sydney. From the start, I knew I was adopted. When I was about 18, my parents gave me my adoption document. It said my name had originally been Damien Ingram Nichols, and that my biological mother was Daphne Ingram Nichols. Over the next 30 years, I thought about it on and off, but never did anything about finding my biological family. I got on with journalism studies that led to magazine writing that eventually led to being an author and working in TV production. In 2011-2012, I was on the crew of Masterchef, and at this time, I was also writing a young adult trilogy set in a post-apocalyptic Australia. When I'd finished that trilogy, I embarked on writing a new young adult book. This one was about an Australian girl who goes to Hollywood in the mid-1930s. Researching that world, I stumbled upon the true story of Mary Maguire and spent the next three or four years researching her life for the book Australia's Sweetheart. In doing so, I began using Ancestry, among other resources. In late May 2018, on a Saturday, as I was putting the finishing touches on Australia's Sweetheart, I thought I really ought to turn these research skills on myself. Over the years, when I'd thought about it at all, I always assumed that Ingram Nichols was a double-barrelled surname, which made sense given it was also my mother's name. On that Saturday afternoon, my new dip into research led to a military enlistment for Harold Ingram Nichols, Gower Wilson's mate, one of Lord Howe Island's Band of Nine. Now I realised Ingram wasn't a surname, it was a middle name. Hitting Ancestry, I found a wealth of Nicholses who each had Ingram as a middle name. The most recent was an electoral roll listing for a Bernard Ingram Nichols. That led me to a search that resulted in an email address. I sent a message explaining briefly who I was. Exactly a week later, in the study, working on Australia's sweetheart again, an email came back. This was from a Mark Nichols and he wrote that he strongly felt we were related and I should give him a call if I liked. With my heart pounding, that's what I did. He answered, I said who I was and I asked, what can you tell me? He replied, I'm your brother. My full brother, same father and what's more Mark is an identical twin to Brett. So two brothers just 18 months younger than me. Mum, Daphne, is alive and well, and living on Lord Howe Island. Turned out Bernard, Barney, is my uncle, Daphne's brother. Mum's a twin, so I've also got another uncle, Garth. Plus, two lovely cousins, two great sisters-in-law, and an awesome nephew, and two lovely nieces, who are, of course, my daughter's cousins. We all get on beautifully. So the role of fate, the element of luck, whatever you want to call it, the Ingram middle name proved key to me finding my family. Without it, searching for Nichols's would have been Needle in Haystack Territory. Bestowing Ingram as a middle name had been practised in the family since my great-grandfather George, son of Captain Thomas and Mary Andrews, in 1898 married a woman named Gwendolyn Rose Ingram Garth, and they had their first child, Harold, one of the band of nine. The Ingram middle name was passed down his line, including to my grandfather and then to mum and to the uncles, but it stopped after me. Neither Mark or Brett got the Ingram middle name, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't have found my family, at least not the way I did. There's a little more. Working on MasterChef for six months, one of my crewmates was Kate Nichols, one of Australia's best TV food producers and my brother Mark's wife. We had plenty of chats back then without either of us having the slightest clue. That young adult trilogy I was writing? The third book was written in 2014. It was called The Last Place, and it was all about those apocalypse survivors fleeing the baddies and the burning Australian continent for The Last Place, they'll be safe. Lord Howe Island. The book ends with them sailing for Lord Howe from Port Macquarie in a small but sturdy boat. Originally, I'd intended to depict the characters arriving in this tiny remote community. As I'm big on research, I was going to go to Lord Howe, which no doubt would have led me to the woman who literally wrote the book about the place, my mother, Daphne Nichols. How to explain this? Fate, the element of luck both, neither. I'm not sure how it happened, but I'm forever grateful that it did. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Again, big thanks to members of the Rickard Bell and Powers families. To my mum, Daphne Nichols, for her love, support, and her insights into Lord Howe Island, both in our chats and through her book, Lord Howe Island Rising and to Simon Drake of the National Film and Sound Archive for making this episode possible. Forgotten Australia will be back soon with new episodes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.